Hello and welcome to Stump Mike Dustra. Uh, this is technically the second episode because we unwittingly launched last time, but that's what the whole ethos of this pod is about. It's quite, uh, it's quite ad hoc and disorganized. Uh, it's called Dustra because, uh, like... But it comes first. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's called Dustra, but it came first. Uh, but, uh... Essentially, it's called Dustra because like the Dustra, like the delivery, it should probably be looked at with suspicion and would not pass any kind of standardized testing, most probably. Uh, and I'm actually kind of surprised that uh, Crickinpo have gone for this podcast. They've given me and myself a manga uh, free reign every fortnight to do a podcast. We had to beg for it a couple of times and in a m- moment of weakness, they agreed uh, I'm not sure how that's gonna how that's gonna pan out for the site, but here we are. What a contentious name, first of all. Um, Dusra, uh, even with the deli- it comes obviously from the d- delivery that the off spinners bowl that went the other way. Even even then, I used to have a problem with the name because uh, unlike unlike in English, English English language doesn't differentiate between male and female when it comes to objects there's no there's no gender for objects in english language but the language that dusra comes from hindi or urdu objects there are male and female objects and there's different ways to talk about them like uh, a female the dusra means the second literally but here it's the other one now if it was female it would be called dusri and male would be dusra and you ask people out in the street what's the gender of the cricket ball and I'm sure it will be it will be divided right down the middle whether it's male or female. Somebody would say it's the the ball is female. I, I remember and, I, I and remember, equal I remember once Bishan Bedi who is not a fan of the Dusra. Uh, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> once once that. said, uh, the destroy is like the like the the other man or like the illicit sexual relationship. That. Uh, but he did say it's like the mistress. The yeah, the mistress. Oh, he the said the mistress. mistress. Okay, even though it's a male male form of the word. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. <laughs> Maybe Bishan Bedi it and Bishan Bedi speaks Punjabi mostly, and Punjab in Punjabi definitely there's no ambiguity. There's a clear every object is either male or female. And ball in in Punjabi is female. Yeah, I mean, in any case, the uh, the point is that this is not a, uh, a podcast that is meant to be taken seriously or recorded seriously. However, we will do our best to try and tackle some fairly relevant topics. Um, the first of which is being Afghanistan's incredible win, uh, you know, on on Monday evening in Chittagong. Uh, Monga, you've followed Af- Afghanistan cricket probably closer than anyone outside of Afghanistan. Uh, can you just talk us through how that came about, what that means for Afghanistan as well? Yeah, I think I think the moment Bangladesh put all their eggs in the spin basket, if you if you remember the lineup, Bangladesh lineup, Shoma Sharkar was the fastest bowler in the, and he's slower than Saurav Ganguly. So uh, the mo- the moment they put all the eggs in the spin basket, they they brought Afghanistan into the game because Afghanistan by no means are ba- have bad spinners they've got uh, they, they also picked up uh, they picked another extra spinner in their lineup so now they had three wrist spinners two of them who are very difficult to pick and then they also had the old school wily 
finger spin of Mohammad Nabi. So, uh, once the bowling departments were matched up, uh, it the toss became crucial, and also it came down to Afghanistan's batting, which has which has been very dodgy because they don't get to play this uh, this much first class cricket to be have to have the to know how to build innings in test cricket. So that would have been the most satisfying part for them that there was one century, the first century, and deservingly went to Rahmat Shah, who fell in the 90s in the in the in their previous test that they beat Ireland in. So Rahmat Shah, their best test batsman, led the way. Asghar Afghan, the veteran, followed in, helped them out, and then Rashid Khan, when they had a score on the board, he had a little bit of fun, scored a 50, and they. They got past 300, which was which was always going to test Bangladesh on that surface. So uh, batting, batting to me, and I'm sure it, ask any Afghan player, batting would have been the most satisfying part of that win. Yeah, and incredible that I mean, so two of their three tests so far, they've won one against Ireland, uh, as you mentioned, one against uh, one against Bangladesh. The first one against India, of course, they've lost very badly, but. Uh, I mean, it, this is. I mean, this team just continues to to rise. They had a terrible World Cup, but uh, Rashid Khan seems to have sort of uh, stir, stirred them up in the in the Test format, and uh, now they've they've won a second Test uh, so quickly. I mean, very rarely do you see a team coming into the Test format and racking up a couple of wins, especially an away Test win against quite an established uh, Test team. Um, it's Yes, Bangladesh were off their game and they made some pretty serious tactical blunders, but we've seen teams make those blunders before and the newer teams fail to compete. Yeah, and just talking to those Afghanistan players, the one thing that always stands out is is this bullish, almost bullish self-confidence that no matter what happens, no matter what comes our way, we will find a way to tackle it. I've never seen, uh, I've not covered many teams' test debuts, but for a team with such little first-class experience, such little experience of playing teams and attacks of test quality, to have that confidence coming into these these games and to just say that, for guys to say that if we bat so many overs, we will win this game. That's that's how, I mean, they go into ODI cricket saying if, if our batsmen can somehow take us to, like, this is how confident guys like Rashid Khan, Mohammad Dabi and others, Gurbuddin Naib too are. They, they say if if somehow our batsmen can take us to 100 for 3 in 30 overs, I'm talking of ODI cricket, and then they say we'll win that game. Because we know we can add another 150 and 250 is is very much defendable because of our bowling. Yeah, and one of the most like difficult things to do, and one of the funniest things that you can inflict on a on a home team is to go to their home country and inflict such a difficult defeat that it kind of sends their their board and their team into a little bit of turmoil, which is exactly what they've done in just their third test. Uh, Shakib Al Hassan has has come out and said, "I don't want to captain another test." Uh, there's been blaming of the pitch. There's been the, the Bangladesh board has got involved and said uh, it's they need to look at how the, the strategy and the team management has been uh, con- contributed to this loss and, and basically hold a, uh, an inquiry, informal inquiry, into how that it's uh, how, how things went wrong in this test. Like, you don't really expect these, I think, these kind of I things think to the happen secret, from, a, from I think, 
brand new team i think they secretly believe that uh, sri lanka might have set put down a blueprint to succeed in test cricket which is to have as much chaos in administration as possible i think they are on purpose trying to copy sri lanka who might or might not have copied pakistan yeah <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad that the mantle has been passed to to Sri Lanka. I'm glad that we have more and more people are I think Hathur I think Hathur Singer is to be blamed for all of yeah. this. So I mean funny thing funny thing you say about Hathur Singer. So Hathur Singer is still in Sri Lanka, right? Like so he lives in Sydney. But <laughs> but he's still in Sri Lanka at the moment because uh although the, the although he's been suspended from his job as uh, as head coach uh and this happened I don't know a month and a half ago maybe yeah probably about 6 weeks ago he was suspended from his job normally when you're suspended from your job indefinitely you go you just go home but he's chosen to remain in Sri Lanka uh without his family because he doesn't want the board to use his leaving to Australia as uh as an argument to say that he abandoned his post so he's staying in Sri Lanka essentially he's holding himself hostage uh because he doesn't want the board to have any grounds to say that uh he was negligent in his in his duties and he wants to get paid out for the rest of the contract rather than being uh rather than being fired terminated early uh so it's like yeah so it's crazy what is going on in in Sri Lanka at the moment funny as it is funny as it is i'm 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 a little disappointed with hathu here I would have expected him to have a body double in Sri Lanka <laughs> to serve this purpose while he Well, he he, he might he might actually be doing it. Yeah, we we actually don't know. I mean, for all you know. Yeah, yeah. We uh, the board probably wouldn't be. I if there's any board that you can run a body double by and fool them, it's SLC. So yeah, Hathu, if you're listening, and you haven't done it already. Uh, you should probably you should probably look into <laughs> that. Get a few extra days with your family. One man who doesn't who for whom you can't have a body double is Lasit Malinga. Yeah. Yeah, that's a perfect segue into our into our next topic. Uh because uh, yeah, I I mean a lot of people try. There's a lot of uh, a lot of especially around the coast in Sri Lanka who have the Lasit Malinga hair, but they can't obviously they a lot of them are not willing to go as far as adopting the Lasit Malinga uh body that he has at the moment. Speaking about Malinga, the reason we're, we're breaching on uh, breaching that topic is uh, because of his 4 and 4 on Friday. amazing second time in his career that he did it uh four beautiful full deliveries the first two weren't quite yorkers they were like overpitched uh but then two beautiful yorkers to Colin de Grandhomme and Ross Taylor to get both of those uh, informed batsmen out um yeah i did, were you watching that game did you see did you see that happen i saw the last two wickets of this hat trick this double hat trick those two outswingers that outswinging yorkers passed the outside edge of batsman who knew what was coming the it's not like the this was the the ball had just started reversing and this was the first yorker of a spell they knew what was coming they were prepared for it they had cut their back lift shot and they knew what to expect and malinga delivered exactly that and he still went past their outside edges oh it's amazing and uh, you see all four balls pitching within the mat and swinging enough to end up within the bat this is just precision this is absolutely brilliant execution of a skill yeah and the the cool thing was like uh, comparing it to his previous four and four which was in guyana way back in 2007 uh almost another life ago i think maling was like half his current weight back then um and was <laughs> 
<laughs> was uh, was basically like an unknown. Uh, that was like really his breakout moment in international cricket. Wasn't an unknown in Sri Lanka, but was an unknown globally. And uh, and that four and four was like with the old ball reversing the ball back into the right hander. This is like this was like beautiful swing bowling, uh, beating it, swinging it enough to beat the bat, but not enough to miss the stumps, as you said. Um, and I don't want to make this all about myself as well, but uh, I want to give myself a pat on the back for I was covering that match. Um, uh, he Lasith Malinga's got four had had four hat tricks before this. Uh, this one and they were all when he was like quite a lot lot leaner and there was a joke to be made like while the previous four were hat tricks this was a fat trick but, and I, I didn't make that joke so <laughs> yeah <laughs> I can see if you're laughing I, I I, that joke was not made like in, in my defense uh, if you're laughing at that it's it's on you I didn't make the joke I'm not uh, it, a, a bowler of that quality does not deserve to have that kind of classless joke being made of them Dear listeners and Fernando, uh, you will if if you do listen to this, you will be educated a little bit in parts in bits of, about professional wrestling on this show. There will be the frequent mentions and references to professional wrestling. And this in this in this last week, uh, Chris Jericho, 48 years old, now a champion in all elite res- wrestling. Has done something. I mean, something similar to Malinga. Malinga, 36 years old. As he, as you have heard about fat trick and other fat jokes, uh, you you must have seen the photo that Mayala Jawardena posted. You you have seen you have seen you have heard of coaches, administrators, everyone telling Malinga it's your time's over. I can totally imagine uh, if if you have followed wrestling in the last week. Chris Jericho, after winning his AE, first AEW title, All Elite Wrestling, which is a breakaway group from, which is a competitor to the most popular wrestling, that is WWE. So he he won the title, came out and cut an insanely brilliant promo, which is which has gone beyond viral on the internet, and where he he just comes out and he says, "Aren't you going to thank me? Is nobody going to thank me?" And when he <laughs> when he draws thank yous, I mean, he's just he's just telling off doubters and when he draws a thank you out of somebody he says oh, even if you had thanked me I wouldn't have ex- accepted it I don't need your thank you and then he goes on to have uh, to celebrate all alone saying it's okay I- I'm the only child and then he he goes to he goes and opens a champagne before that he says oh, little. so I can totally imagine after this game Lasit Malinga coming off and going past uh, going past the umpire maybe Hey umpire, no thanks to you because you missed the LBW and I had to review it. He could, I can imagine him going to Tisara Pereira <laughs> and telling him about his Facebook posts. I can, I can imagine he's walking past uh, a physio. Oh, there's a trainer. Where were you when Mahila was posting that picture of mine? And <laughs> all those things. And then he's, he, I can totally imagine him. And he was pointing to his to his name on his on the back of his shirt it's it's almost like saying like Jericho hey this this is the double hat trick of Malinga drink it in man I think we were we were going to talk about uh, Pakistan uh, as well and uh, and what's been happening there uh, especially with uh, in terms of Misbah Haq 
being appointed um, both coach and selector after he had been part of the committee to sack the previous coach, Mickey Arthur. Uh, he then resigned from that committee and then was asked by the board apparently to become coach and then he was given all this extra responsibility, uh, becoming one of, you know, becoming probably the most powerful person in Pakistan cricket right now. Uh, what are your thoughts, Manga? So, we are, we are yet to come up with a name for this section in our podcast, but this is our watch on cricket administration where, with weird moves in cricket administration and this has to be like one of the most weird ones. Because, I mean, nobody's doubting Ms. Bawalak, no, nobody's saying is nobody's doubting his integrity, but uh, a lot of conflict of interest is not about the actual corruption, but about the potential, about a person being in a position where he can uh, influence decisions which he should not be. And Misbah has put himself in like the worst of conflicts of interest here. He's done, he's, he's like done everything. The optics of this are really bad. And I mean, you can, you can turn around and say that uh, Pakistan didn't have any other options. Nobody, the other applicants were not better than Misbah. But it still, it still doesn't make for a good look because in the future you could be using this to get, if, okay, people are cool with Misbah become, becoming coach and selector. Ten years down the line, Salman Bhatt could become coach and selector. Then what? Uh, in New Zealand, Mike Hessen is part of the selection committee, but Gavin Larson is uh, the chief selector as far as I understand. Oh, sorry, not Mike Hessen, but Gary Stead, the new coach, is the part of the selection committee, but uh, Gavin Larson sort of sits above him in the, communi- uh, in the committee. So it, it has been tried before. Uh, to have a, a, a coach uh, slash selector. Uh, Sri Lanka currently has a manager slash selector slash media manager, uh, though maybe that's not quite as much of a... I mean, Sri Lanka is not, Sri Lanka is not a benchmark for yeah, any yeah. <laughs> optics <laughs> when it comes to administration. Yeah. Um, but I think the, the bigger, bigger I mean, conflict famous, of interest... Famously, Richie, Richie Beno used to say that I don't want to have a say... Uh, when he was the captain, I don't want to have a say in the selection because then I'm... Once... If if there's a player that I don't, don't like or whatever, I'm, I'm not putting myself in the position to get the best out of that player. And also a crucial, crucial difference between New Zealand and Pakistan is that Misbah has become like the chairman of selectors and not have just one vote in the selection committee. Yeah, I do think that if there's anyone... I mean, in the in, we're in the age of autocrats in, in everything, uh, in politics as well. And if there's one person I would back to be like a, a, a Lee Kuan Yew type figure to, to make good use of that autocratic power... Uh, if there's one person in cricket, it's probably it's probably Misbah who's going to come and uh, and reform Pakistan cricket and and try and overhaul the problems in the domestic system and uh, and put pressure on uh, on the people that need to you know be put pressure on. Uh, it's probably Misbah. He's someone who essentially didn't really have an ego while while playing, uh, and hopefully he won't have one as uh, as a selector. And there's there are a few greater cricket nerds. So I, I do understand, though, from a from a systemic point of view, uh, it's not great, especially because he's also coach of a PSL team, and uh, and he could favor, you know, arguably he could favor PSL uh, players from his PSL team when it comes to national selection, 
uh, because obviously he's going to be more familiar with them. He'll have more of an emotional bond with them. Uh, all normal things for a coach, but uh, it's yeah. Ideally, you have the split roles, but but it's this is the way that cricket's going. No, I, I think like uh, there are autocrats all over cricket right now. I feel it's a little. I I mean maybe I could be wrong, but uh, it might be a little naive of Pakistan cricket board to make all these things official. I mean, look at look at India. If you tell me that Virat Kohli and Ravi Shastri don't get their way with selections, I'd be laughing at you. But they don't, on paper, become chairman of selectors. They could have let Mispa be the coach and let him have a very significant say without like naming him officially the chairman of selectors. I mean, there's always ways to get these things done. They could have given Mispa all the powers, but without making... Uh, it official. Yeah, I think in the last few weeks we've seen uh, quite a bit from Jasper Boomer and Jofra Archer uh, and Pat Cummins, uh, and very little has been said about uh, Kagisa Rabada. All these bowlers are basically in, in their mid twenties. I think Rabada is the youngest of them all, but also the the most established. Uh, just wanted to raise a question: like we have a, a Fab Four of batting in in Smith, Warner, Williamson, and Coley. Do we have a, a Fab Four of fast bowling developing in these young bowlers who all have outstanding averages, who've made great starts to their test career, uh, with maybe the exception of Archer, who's only three tests in, so we don't really know much about him. But do we have a... What, do you, what are your thoughts? Do we have a, a Fab Four of fast bowling on our hands? I wouldn't want to jump the gun on Archer because, as you said, he's only three tests old and it would be very unfair on guys like Hazelwood, Kima Roach and maybe I mean we won't put Stark there because he's on and off he's, he blows hot and cold but definitely Hazelwood Kima Roach even Shami I mean Shami might not I mean you, you can see and tell that Shami won't, Shami's career will not last long enough to go into a fat four but yeah. uh, the other two of, I mean Kima Roach is now uh, just short of becoming the first West Indies bowler since Kirtley Ambrose I think to reach 200 wickets and he's got his stats over the last 5-6 years are as good as any other fast bowler in the world yeah I, th- I, he, think, they're, I think they compare favourably even with Anderson uh, his average at least would. Yeah. and he has no support he does it without support I mean Shannon Gabriel on a day is good on his day is good but he doesn't he's good only for two spells of four yeah. two short and sharp spells of four overs each he's not I would say no to, support because has Holder, to rely on Holder. Yeah, because I think Holder has had has had a couple of good years, so I wouldn't say no support. But but yeah, less support than most of the other very good bowlers that we've mentioned earlier. Yeah, the the only reason I wasn't wasn't comparing Hazelwood is because he's slightly older. So I was just picking players in their mid twenties rather than uh, he's twenty eight. Kimaroch is thirty one. Uh, both of them have uh, very good Hazelwood especially has, has an average of 26.13 uh, Roaches is around there as well um, but the other the, the other four we're mentioning are all sort of 26 uh, Ravada's 24 uh, the others are all sort of between that and 26 uh, and Cummins is uh, I think still the number one bowler in the world or would definitely be the number one bowler in the world after that Old Trafford test. yeah he is we've heard a lot about Archer and the thing about Archer I think uh, is that we've seen he's only bowled in England so far um, we've heard him being compared to I don't know uh, Hadley Marshall 
David Warner compared him to Stain uh, at one point. I feel like poor guys already so already what, like four hundred wickets. Sidney Barnes, Fred, Demons, <laughs> yeah. Pofford, yeah. I mean. uh, Nelson Mandela, Mahatma Gandhi. You know, like <laughs> there are some pretty big names here. Uh, uh, yeah, I feel like yeah, I feel like uh, Archer has to get four hundred wickets. And maybe free North Korea from totalitarianism to like justify the hype that's already being built around him in three in three yeah, tests. I mean, imagine the pressure. Yeah, um, and we haven't seen him bowl outside of England. Uh, he, I don't think he got Smith's wicket at any point. He bowled that bounce that put him out of the test. But uh, this Smith the Archer uh, battle was hyped up massively. And then next match, uh, Smith. Which in hind- I mean, putting putting Smith out of the test in hindsight uh, gave Australia a second batsman. They were playing only one batsman until then. Now they found Labus Kakni, and now they had two batsmen in the eleven. It's all on Archer. Archer lost them the Ashes. He started off like really fast, but when he was in his third test, his pace had come down considerably. I mean, at that day, on that day, Shane Warne was on his back for like two sessions saying there's no intensity there's no intensity which I mean with Shane Warne it's like crying full but uh, yeah I think Shane Warne will at times take any possible pot shot at uh, at an English player at times so I'm not sure he's the the person I trust but yeah I mean Archer's bowled a lot of overs I mean there was like uh, there was a time I think at some point in the series uh, he bowled a third of the overs that had been bowled in the test that he had played in um, uh, and that that is insane. I mean, Joe Root was going to him at every turn, uh, and that's going to take a toll on a on a player. There's no doubting that he is is he's, he he generates pace from that short run up. He's and he's not. He doesn't even hyper extend his arm like Bumrah, and he still gets that pace. He has shown you movement from both sides. He's, is mastered around the wicket angle, which is not very easy to do against left-hand batsmen. So he's got everything. I mean, all the jokes aside, he's got everything. And he, if if there's if there's a lack, any lack of experience or any tricks that he needs to learn, he he's going to be with Broad and Anderson for a couple of years, and you can't find two better teachers than them. Absolutely. But uh, let's talk about a couple of the others now. Um, Pat Cummins obviously is. I mean, he's had a huge effect on the Ashes. Um, probably the bowler of bowler of the Ashes um, so far. Yeah, he t- he's taken three wickets, at least three wickets, and seven of the eight, eight innings that he has bowled in. Yeah, which is a consistency that has been unmatched by anyone in that series. The one positive that he has is that he he bowls in a much better attack, all round attack, than I think any of the other three. Um, if you've got the kinds of riches that you can leave Mitchell Stark out of, of uh, the three first tests of the Ashes uh, based on a rotation policy, you've probably got a, a pretty rock star attack. And I think um, in that sense, Cummins has it easier because he's got, he's got very good bowlers running in at the other end as well, more than uh, even Rabada has had, I would say, uh, because Rabada has but sort geez. of... Hasn't had hasn't had the the company staying for uh, for a while now for yeah. the last couple of years. So C- Cummins also has had to bowl on the flattest pitches of all uh, of of uh, the four guys that we're talking about. Uh, Australia play on easily play by distance on the flattest of the wickets among all these four nations. So Cummins has had to work on those wickets. Rabada and Cummins are not as freakishly gifted as the other two, and they're still. 
do their bit with their fitness with their discipline with the skills which is why I I like them a little bit more than the other two and and Rabada in particular has I think has the toughest job in some ways because he's constantly playing like uh, uh Cummins is not really a huge feature of the the one day team he doesn't have to play in the limited overs uh matches as much as Rabada has because of the way the quota system works in South Africa Rabada is playing pretty much every game uh in order to have like that black african representation in the team uh and he's essentially the best bowler so he's he's playing uh non-stop cricket and i think he's bowled by the time he's 24 he's bowled something like 20% more deliveries in international cricket than any other bowler had bowled uh, at his age um and uh, we saw him have a pretty modest world cup and uh in hindsight maybe you can say and and this argument was we made in the south african press as well uh was that they were just they had just bowled the guy into the ground and uh and he you know he it wasn't really that big of a surprise that he had started becoming uh maybe less effective for a little while thankfully he's getting a little bit of a break now despite all this he's he's still going he still has the best record in test cricket for somebody with as many wickets as rabada has taken is is shy of is just shy of 200 so he's and he and cummins i think similar skill sets both both like to both are both will extract if there's any movement in the pitch they will extract it not huge swing of the ball but any seam movement they'll get it they're, they'll always be at you this this pace is good he's got that explosive pace and and yeah i mean the thing about all of these four is that they can they can get up to that 150 range and they can bowl those transcendental spells that very few other bowlers seem to be able to to reach um and we saw we saw bumrah doing it as well in uh, in the west indies just recently got a hat trick of his own uh in test cricket which uh, which even his idol marlinger has uh, hasn't or idol maybe not maybe the wrong word but mentor marlinger uh hasn't had got a, a test match hat trick uh what did you think of of how uh, bumrah went in in west indies it's amazing how easy he makes it look man he's just he it was and um, let's talk a little bit about the test before the hat trick test where uh when he bowled in the first innings he was he was coming back from a layoff from international cricket for a while and he didn't look that great in the first innings comes out in the second innings is a stiffish breeze blowing around the ground and uh, of course when it's uh, there's a breeze india started to swing the ball which it was not doing for a bit now if it is swinging ishant of course got the end where the uh, where the swing with the with the breeze helped him to swing the ball in and we as we know bumrah is mainly an in swing bowler uh he he does he has the ability to for the ball to get to hold its line but uh, mo- mostly he's been an in swing bowler with a surprise out swing ball here or there i could i can remember one that he bowled to keaton jennings last english summer and he was just left stunned he just basically it was a straight ball at the stumps and jennings thought it would end up at second slip or something so he shouldered arms and he was lbw <laughs> so anyway that's a background to him bowling outswing which he doesn't usually do and today and in this innings he had the breeze for outswing bowling suddenly he goes out there 
flip, turns the, the scene towards third man, uh, changes his grip a little, starts bowling outswing, and he has six wickets with outswing bowling, which is just amazing. I mean, this is the stuff of dreams. I mean, uh, this is what you fantasize when you when you're like 12 years old and you think of wanting to become a test cricketer. This, these are the kind of things, and he's doing it effortlessly. It's, it's, he's, uh, he, it will be like, uh, he will end up as one of, one or two greatest Indian fast bowlers by the time he's done, and touch wood, he remains fit. Yeah, I mean, I think what excites me more about him than any of the other bowlers, and probably like any other player at the moment, is just the smarts, just the ability to, uh, to change uh, the way he's doing things based on what the conditions are at that time. And for him to be doing that, I mean, he's only 12 tests in. Uh, he's got 62 wickets. He's basically inhaling wickets at the moment. That's how fast he's getting them. His strike rate of, of 43.7. Um, and uh, none of those matches have been at home, by the way. He, uh, they've all been away from home. So the next test will be for him to come in and replicate that success in, uh, in less friendly seam bowling conditions. If India are bowling first, he has invariably in every test had a remarkably, significantly better second spell than the first. So, it if it doesn't work out in the first spell, he's, he will always he always comes back with a great second spell with all the corrections that are required to be made on that pitch. And no surprise that he's the only Asian bowler. I mean, there have been great fast bowlers from Asia. But he's the only Asian fast bowler to have taken a Pfeiffer in all four countries. On Asia, in England, Australia, South Africa and West Indies. Yeah, if we're talking about World Test Championship, yeah, about Test Cricket, uh, I think it deserves uh, mention that the World Test Championship is on. And the current leaders on that board are India with 120 points uh, with like some six days of test cricket or something like that in West Indies whereas Australia have retained the ashes they've won three te- two test matches and they've drawn one they've lost one they've, they've like fought really hard it's a really hard uh, fought series and they still have only 56 points uh, <laughs> it's, it's this point system I mean I don't know where to start with, with what all is wrong with World Test Championship. First of all, the concept uh, to find out a champion based on just one match is like is the opposite of what Test Cricket is all about. Test Cricket is superiority. Test Cricket superiority has to be established over a period of time, at least two years in playing on all kinds of conditions. Uh, so first of all, this based on one final is stupid and then We've got a point system that's even more that makes even less sense. There's no there's no uh, advantage of winning away. There's no incentive of winning away. Australia have gone away and have played such a hard fought series, and they still have only 56 points. Whereas India will definitely beat Bangladesh 2-0 at home, and they will have 120 points from that. Uh, another and when it comes to draws, there's no I mean, sides do have the better of uh, others in a draw and people will end up with equal points after a draw. Uh, For example, 
just if if this Bangladesh Afghanistan game, which which was very close to being a draw because of weather, if it had been a draw and it had been part of World Test Championship, can you imagine both the sides would have walked away with equal number of points? Yeah, but this this has always been this has always been the case with with Test cricket is that you can get those draws and you walk away with having escaped. That's always been the case with Test cricket. I don't think the Test it's not the Test cricket championship that's uh, that's in, uh, introducing that. And also, I would say that the un, the inequality the inequality in the in the point system is just a reflection of the inequality in the Test game at the moment. Teams. Many teams don't play three test series. Many teams only play two test series. Sri Lanka very rarely gets to play a three test series. They've never played a, a series of more than three tests. So you can't have a system where uh, the likes of England, Australia, India, who can afford to host virtually any team at home for a four test series, but they refuse to because it's not as lucrative. Um, you can't. You can't have it both ways, you know. Like the, these teams have to, at some point, say, "Okay, this is the the Test cr- cricket world that we've helped create." Uh, and despite being despite being the more well resourced among the nations for reasons of uh, economy, basically size of economy, that's what it comes down to. Um, so, uh, what do you expect a governing body to do? I mean, you expect them to address this imbalance instead of actually incentivizing marginalizing the lesser teams further because now india have no incentive india have no incentive to play a three test series against bangladesh now because they would want to get in get out they, they already they already each. don't have they already don't have that incentive they've never played a, a they they treat they for you're all, actually giving them in no for for all of so you are not the history so far there's never been a sri lanka uh, there's never been an india bangladesh uh, test series that's been three tests. I don't think this is something that the World Test Championship is imposing on them. It's something that that's already exists. So uh, no, but we, I'm just saying that if if India are playing, let's say India are playing Sri Lanka for three tests, the last series between India and Sri Lanka was three tests. Now you're giving India incentive to go and play only two test matches. As soon as a, a test goes wrong between Sri Lanka and and, and India, as soon as Sri Lanka gets one of those tests and it's not impossible that they do uh, then India have shot themselves in the put it's it's up to Sri Lanka to to turn that against India and and to win one of those tests if, if especially if that series is in Sri Lanka it's uh, it's a possibility that Sri Lanka win and it's uh, and India have shot themselves in the foot that happens quite often in sport and it's up to the the other the team that's been slighted then to try and overturn that um, but the other point I want to make is that this is a long-term thing. You can't just look at India getting at the points against West Indies and against Bangladesh because it's it's a two-year cycle. So you've got to wait until that two years where hopefully it'll have balanced out. India will have a, a couple of away series, I believe, during that time. And uh, and they'll have a few longer series. Uh, Australia will have some shorter series at home. They're playing Pakistan in, in a two-test series at home uh, over the next uh, few months. And they're playing another team. I think they're playing New Zealand in a two-test series at home over the next few months. So it's not like it's not like England and Australia will never get to play a two-test series. They will play a number of them through the course of the two two-year cycle. Uh, it's just that I think I mean ICC's heart is in the right place when they are trying to do this, but the execution is oh, poor. I mean they they are also dependent on 
home boards actually playing ball and you know uh, home boards are refusing to give up on their existing commitments which like australia and england will never say hey we'll pick these two tests out of the five in the ashes for world test world test championship and the other three will just count towards the ashes what i mean the way they could solve is to have a slightly longer cycle uh to say have a three year cycle and to have more series in the in in the cycle i'm just willing to see how this cycle goes i'm just willing to reserve my judgment until we get to the end of the two years and you know test cricket is not an equal playing field i think ideally what i'd like to see happen is for the icc to set aside a fund and say the first three tests uh that uh basically incentivize teams to play three tests and say your operational cost for that third test where you know the icc fund is going to cover that so essentially to supplement uh that board's income uh for that particular test and then you have uh you ha- you get teams playing more th- three test series and if you want to play an ashes a five test series say only the first three tests of that series count towards the world test championship or only three tests of that series you can demarcate it however you want there are two tests that don't count towards the the uh the world test championship that are just part of the ashes um and then you can have a system where you only have three test series counting towards the the world test championship uh but that's not going to happen unless the icc really takes it by the scruff of the neck and and makes it its own tournament uh as it does the world cup as it does the 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 t20 world cup where the boards basically submit to whatever the the world, the the icc does and the icc runs it funds it uh and uh, it's you know is very much the governing body whereas in the test championship so far the the home boards are involved to a much greater level than they would be at the 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 limited overs tournaments not practical because i would first like the icc to take charge of the drs which is an umpiring tool which it has left in the hands of uh, i would first like the icc to take charge of ball tampering which is in the hands of host broadcasters uh this is <laughs> this is a pipe dream that icc will take charge of world test championship i think uh, and i'm i might be a little cynical in this i think this test championships ultimate uh impact will be reduction in the amount of test cricket played in the world where every t- all the teams will now be reducing themselves to six series or two years and to the bare minimum unless until and unless it is a commercially viable series like the ashes or india versus australia or india versus england you will now see people outside these three contests you will see teams just playing 12 test matches over the course of two years which will open up space but, for other but i don't i don't see i don't see how that will happen because so far there are test cricket is an expensive uh sponsors sorry uh, broadcasters don't put much value on test cricket anywhere uh sri lanka for example can only host uh england and india profitably australia they just australia and pakistan they just about make uh, break even uh so already test cricket is not a not a profitable enterprise in the majority of cases but it exists sri lanka is still interested in playing test cricket uh for its own reasons they want to have it uh i do, i don't see how the test the world test championships actually going to cut into that i think in any if if anything it will help uh it will help gain it will help develop more interest and that's the aim of the icc and i'm i think you're being i think you're being overly cynical because i don't actually see how your your point follows from your conclusion follows from from the way it's structured it's going to give it's going to give people 
uh, and boards reasons to play less test cricket but they were to be fair so why India, why India have a final 20 points so why far. what is this what is this what is this need what is this fixation this fetish with the final why not just say after 2 years whichever team has the most points is the best test side in the world so it, it i mean if we have to have a test championship it it should be over 4 years at least 4 years where every team has had one home and one away if we need to cut down the length of the series if you want to just for the purpose of it then so be it but that this is where the bigger boards will not play ball and then at, the final cannot be based on just one final one match it has to be a test series yeah anyway i think that maybe that's uh, that's a good point to to leave the podcast um uh i think uh, srinath and the team and uh, we'll be back next week with the uh, with the stump mike pelo the 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 flagship stump mike podcast uh, and then i think among and i'll be back the, the week after that so we'll uh, we'll catch you later thanks for listening in.